Hello and welcome to Transplaner RPG. We are an all transgender, person of color led, dark fantasy actual play channel featuring homebrew stories that center non colonial, anti orientalist world building and campaigns about queerness, grief, hope, and the power of love. Godkiller First Blood is a 16 part podcast miniseries that follows a mythic, violent, and transformative tale about a single mortal rising against the challenges of the divine. Tonight, your god is me, Connie Chong, and my god killer is C. Thomas. First Blood is a dark fantasy series that explores themes that may be triggering for some listeners. Content warnings for this episode may include fantasy violence, classism, poverty, religious imagery, grief, trauma, and mentions of alcohol and drug use, sex, starvation, and guns as weaponry. Episode 10, Citadel. The journey out of Chemical 4 is brisk. Baby roars off the stone bridge, guttering onto the rough gravel of the vat's ridge and speeding toward that thin black needle in the distance that is the Citadel. As you leave Chemical 4 behind, the fumes thin out until Eos is able to turn on the high beams again. And within hours, the smell is gone, and the metal labs and glass workshops of Chemical 4 give way to a brand new landscape. Buildings tower into the sky, blotting out the horizon on all sides. Skyscrapers bristle with shattered glass and rusted prongs of rebar. The cracked hulls of coliseums pockmark the land, interrupted by the downed bodies of airplanes taken over by verdant growth. The mini-truck roars eastward and northward toward the citadel, which breaks into view like a black sword plunged into the flesh of the cradle. From this distance, the citadel resembles an obsidian spear, its crown subsumed by clouds easily the size of a city and a half just by itself. The three of you watch as that spear grows larger and larger until it is a stick of dynamite, an iron ingot, a quarter of the entire horizon. Baby crests a large hill, following what used to be a paved path, but is now just smashed dirt and concrete. And at the zenith of this slope, vine-choked trees parked to reveal the citadel burrows, which sprawl in a vast valley beneath you like luscious fruits spilling from the mouth of a cornucopia. These neighborhoods are built into the shadow of the citadel itself, which towers like the pointer of a sundial, its massive shadow falling over one-sixth of the burrow at its base at any given time. These privileged hamlets enjoy their proximity to the cradle's capital. Even from this distance, you can see how colorful the buildings are, how new and refurbished. There are no junkyards here. There are no metallic corpses of felled buildings, no pit towns, no vats filled with stinking acid. There is only beauty and glamour and shine. From this distance up on the hill, the glimmering structures in the valley below evoke precious gems. You 
are mere hours away from reaching the Citadel proper. The end of your journey is now finally within reach. Aos taps the gas, and Baby rolls down a series of switchbacks heading toward those glittering Citadel townships. And as this mini-truck rolls forward, Rune, what is your response to seeing the Citadel and its surrounding neighborhood up close for the first time in your life? The feeling starts in the tips of their fingers. Rune is leaned all the way forward, straining against their seatbelt, with their face basically pressed up against the interior glass of Baby's windshield. And despite themselves, I think that there is a frenetic, anxious kind of energy roiling around in the pit of their chest, the pit of their stomach. And there's something akin to disgust and something akin to awe that is bubbling inside of Rune as the Citadel finally comes into focus. This thing of legend, this place of dreams, this, this holy abomination of space and beauty and pleasure and divinity that is at once so real and so unreal that Rune is hardly able to fathom it. And kind of like a mouse shrinking in the shadow of a hawk, Rune tries to peel themselves both closer to and away from the shadow of the citadel as it falls over them. This massive tower piercing the sky. And at some point as they're going down the hill, their knee starts bouncing a little bit. They start fiddling with the edge of their seatbelt. They press their face against the glass and then move away as though scared by what they've seen and immediately go to press their face against the glass again. And it's this anxious back and forth, I think. And there's a sickening fascination, a violent curiosity that rolls through Rune upon seeing the Citadel. Antigone is annoyed and perturbed by how restless you are. As you keep shifting around, I think you feel like an aimless shadow, pressing and then pulling back, pressing and then pulling back. And finally, as Baby continues trundling down these switchbacks, Antigone kind of turns sharply to you. I think she's buckled into the middle seat in the back, right? And you're kind of uh, up front. Mm -hmm. And she just goes, I think the time is nigh for us to switch seats. You know, there's plenty of window back here as well. Oh, you're right. I'm going upstairs. And Rune unbuckles themselves out of the front seat and immediately moves toward the sunroof. I, you, you're going to fall off. I hate it when you do that. I'm not going to fall off. We were going like 120 on that highway in Refinery 19 and I didn't fall off. I jumped off. There's a difference. Okay, yes, well, there are rocks on this road that might bump and you might jostle. And if you fall over the side and hit your head and die, that's not my problem. Oh, fear me, a rock. God killer slayed once again. Careful, lest you forget the lesson of the Nine of Cups felled by the bite of the Viper of the Ace of Swords. What? Such a massive deity, a giant, yeah, one might not. say. I am going upstairs. But, but he was killed by the bite of a tiny little snake god. You stop. Ugh. And you like slide open the sunroof and you disappear up top. You ascend mm. onto the roof where Antigone's gibbering quips can't get to you. And like, I think the last thing you hear as you slide the sunroof shut is, well, learn the parable of the bam. And you can't hear her anymore. A hundred percent. And in this like soft wind, Rune looks up, your face tilting toward the citadel. And it's once again that feeling of being on the edge of a precipice. Except this time Rune is at the bottom of it, looking up, looking all the way up toward the height from which they feel like they've just fallen. Mm. And they just take it all in. Yeah. 
I think the descent toward the base of the citadel is slow and easy. It is golden and radiant and beautiful. This place looks nothing like Iron 42. It looks nothing like Refinery 19, even nothing like Chemical 4, which was only three days ride away from this place. But the difference is literal night and day. This place looks like a paradise. There are flowering gardens. There are tall, unbroken buildings. There's no shattered glass on the ground. Everything here is whole and white. And I think Baby eventually reaches the bottom of this hill, right? And she rolls onto an on-ramp that leads directly into the Citadel towns. And here on this ramp, the traffic finally begins to thicken as multiple roads, walking paths, train lines, and even subterranean tunnels surface and merge, forming a very neat grid of streets that feeds into each of the four earthly districts. And having taken the shortcut through Chemical 4, the three of you now find yourselves driving through the District of Invention. Up on the roof, you have a wonderful view of market stalls, roofs of ceramic tile, and trees. Actual trees sprouting from cracks in the concrete, their branches heavy with pollen and flowers and fruit. And there are businesses here too as well, so many different kinds of businesses, unconstrained to just mining a single resource that has to be produced, unlike Iron 42 or Refinery 19 or Chemical 4. There are taverns here in the District of Invention with smoke billowing from chimneys and patrons idling on patios, very well-groomed and well-manicured people who drink dark red wine and smoke thick cigars. You also see gambling parlors, repurposed temples to now long-dead gods with stained glass and gilded eaves and very pretty boys out front, beckoning travelers into their velvet-lined decks. You also see libraries sprawling extravagantly, huge marble stairs and scholars in silk robes lounging on emerald front lawns of grass, poring over books and playing games on tiled boards. There is wealth here. Wealth. More than just trade and barter, there is money. Actual money. Fat gold coins, glimmering ingots of silver, rings of bronze, all bearing the mark of the Wheel of Fortune, emblazoned and stamped upon the metal. Flanking baby all around you are other vehicles as well, guttering their way up and down this thoroughfare at a fairly easy pace. There are the usual motorbikes and trucks, but there are also palanquins of alabaster wood, rickshaws drawn by muscular runners, even horse-pulled wagons. I don't think you've ever seen a horse before. No, I absolutely have not. Rune startles upon seeing them so hard that they nearly fall off the truck. They like skitter backward, thinking <laughs> that this is a mirage, a ghost of the chariot come back to haunt them for half a moment. And I think they let out a kind of yelp as they open the sunroof halfway and stick their leg down, nearly kicking Antigone in the face as they do so before they pause as the horse-drawn carriage trots past. They stare at it with wide eyes. They stare at the driver with this kind of intense expression from on top of the truck. 
Yeah, I think there's like a father dangling with his legs off the tailgate at the other side of this wagon, staring at you, right? As it like retreats up this main thoroughfare and he's like bouncing a toddler on his leg and both of them stare at you with like narrowed eyes, a look of consternation as you almost slip off upon seeing their horse. Rune leans down to whisper through the sunroof. What the hells was that? What was that? You stop. I told you, you were going to fall off. No, I'm You're fine. You're going to get what, what, trampled what? to death if you fall off here. There are so many vehicles on this road. Yeah, there are. There's so, there's so much. There's so much. And Rune's eyes have grown completely wide. Their pupils blown open. And there is a childlike wonder that is resting on top of this hideous fascination with this place. A kind of openness to seeing something that they truly never thought that they would see ever. This place partially reminds them of the river, but it is not nearly as vast, not nearly as empty. This place is full of life, full of wealth, full of colors, smells, sights that Rune has never seen before in their entire life. And they are drinking it all in as though they have been starved for their whole life. Mm. They're gawking at the horses and the animals. They're looking at the different stalls. I think they even at some point reach out over the edge of Baby's upper ridge to grasp at a leaf from a tree. They like pull it off a little bit and marvel at it before sticking it down through the sunroof again, waving it kind of at Antigone and going, look, look what I got. Yes, it's a leaf. It's a real leaf. Yes, they are. Hold it for me. (sighs) Okay, fine. And Rune hands it to her and throws themselves back up to the top of the sunroof, not wanting to miss another single second of this place. You hear Eos's voice drifting up through the crack in the sunroof. Don't fall off. We're not coming back for you if you do. Yes, you are. Okay, but I really don't want to. I'm fine. I'm fine. I promise. Promise I'm not going to fall off. Said it like 10,000 times now. The truck continues to gutter down this road. You continue to take in the sights, the sounds, the smells. By God, the smells. So many different kinds of smoke. You only were familiar with two. The cheap hand-rolled cigarettes you would sometimes bum off of Reksha and the smoke guttering from the smelting furnaces. But here, it's perfumed. Is that even possible? Perfumed smoke billowing out of chimneys and these glittering, glamorous-looking buildings and the people... Rune, the people are almost as colorful and radiant and shining and gorgeous and handsome as the buildings and the trees and the leaves and the plants and the animals here. It's like you were a little shade down in a pit and now you're plucked up somewhere in paradise and left to roam. This place is like a dream. You never thought it could ever possibly be real, but here it is and you're in it. As Baby gets closer to her destination, You see, rising above the tiled roofs and colorful eaves of the District of Invention, a wall encircling the base of the citadel. This wall goes all the way around, with four gates set into the black metal and gray stone. Each gate faces outward toward one of the four earthly districts, and Baby right now is approaching the southern gate, which belongs, of course, to the District of Wand, the District of Invention. As the mini-truck approaches, you see a sleek, iridescent entryway carved from ivory and horn. These massive double doors begin to swing open to admit Baby without an issue. And I think as the mini-truck gutters underneath its awning, how are you reacting to this? 
As Rune sees the gate approaching, they do slip back through the sunroof into the interior of Baby, taking up the middle seat, but they're leaned over the partition so that they're basically abreast with Eos and Antigone in the front, and they are peering out the windowsill, trying to arc their face up, trying to see the top of the citadel, which they haven't been able to. It's so massive, they can't even see where it ends. So I think as they're getting closer and going through these gates, it's a kind of like hidden fascination Rune still has, trying to poke their head up and around, probably further annoying Antigone. Yes, I think she keeps like slapping at your face as you keep like poking it through the partition. She slaps it, then he poke it through. She slaps it, then he poke it through. Eos completely ignores this exchange. She drives the truck down a granite bridge spanning a deep river that also encircles the base of the citadel beyond the gates. And the waters of this river, they flow gently and they rush up against pebbled shores where you see emerald bushes growing dotted with these colorful flowers. There's so much nature here. This is the most nature you've ever seen in your life. I bet the water's even clean. Yeah, they don't look dirty. They don't look sit-stained. It's, it's a far cry from the toxic sludge of the vat. After crossing this bridge with its crystal clear river water, the citadel looms a hundred feet before you. Through the windshield, you see a pair of double oak doors reinforced with iron hinges set into the southern face of the citadel. Leading up to these doors is a flight of stairs, accompanied by a low, curving ramp. At this point, Eos pulls Baby to a stop, letting the engine idle in front of the stairs, and she kind of glances over her shoulder at you and at Antigone. Antigone gives her champion a curt nod, and then looks over at you as well, Rune. And the expression on her face is kind of grim and very serious. Our two rules... Say them back to me. Do I really have to? Yes. Is it completely necessary? Yes, a hundred percent. What are they? Don't tell anyone I'm a heretic. Don't tell anyone I'm the god killer. Basically, don't say anything. Actually, that's a great idea for our third rule. Uh... Don't say anything. Do not speak. Do not even think about speaking. Do I make myself clear? Rune shrugs their shoulders and mouths the words, yeah, perfectly, without saying them out loud. Okay, you don't have to be snarky about it. You can speak when spoken to by myself or by Eos. No one else. Yes, princess. Fine, 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 fine. The proper way to address me is not as princess, but as Lady Antigone. Rune gives her a sardonic smile, a false half-curtsy, which is awkward in the backseat. Of course... And then they mimic Eos's voice to the best of their ability. My lady Antigone. Antigone narrows her eyes, and she looks very much like a serpent ready to strike in that moment. But she doesn't say anything else. And Eos lets out her best intimation of an exasperated sigh, and then she hops out of the car. She goes around the front of Baby, and she opens up the passenger side door and escorts Antigone out of the passenger side seat. And you are kind of like left to clamber awkwardly out of the back by yourself. It's a bit undignified uh, in front of the headlights of the car. And as soon as you're out and as soon as baby is clear, coming out from, I think, a row of hedges is what appears to be a chauffeur. Like the servant just materializes. They come uh, and Eos hands baby's keys to this chauffeur. Oh, hey, hold on now. That's my car. Antigone immediately cuts her eyes to you. Route number three. 
It's my car. And Rune leans to this chauffeur, this intense expression on their face, and they look them dead in the eyes and say, if you fuck up my car, if you scratch the paint, I will find you. Uh, isn't this a swords caravan? It's... I recognize the chassis, the wheels. It's my car. Okay. Uh, this chauffeur looks terrified. It's some, like, teenager. They Their eyes are wide. They look scrangly and scraggly, and they nod rapidly, right? And they, they accept the keys from Eos with a shaking hand. They scamper into the driver's side seat and, like, pull baby off to the side, right? And you watch as the mini truck goes around the curve of the Citadel's base toward a depression in the ground that presumably leads into some sort of underground connected garage system. And as soon as baby is clear, Antigone lets out a... Okay, fine. Now will you actually adhere to rule number three? You didn't tell me someone was going to come and take my car. Where did you think the car was going to go? For a moment, Rune's face is completely blank. Like part of them had actually thought that they would be driving Baby all the way into the Citadel meeting room and that they would be inside of it forever. The cognitive dissonance hadn't yet actually settled within them, right? Like they had just assumed that they would always have the car as a kind of baby blanket, as a kind of safety net. (laughs) And now that they don't have it, they're fidgeting a little bit awkwardly with the chain of the long knives at their hip. They shift back and forth. Fine. Right. Whatever. Okay, let's let's go. <clears throat> Silent from here on out. Promise. Good. You better make good on that promise. Oh my god, what the fuck is that? And Rune runs to the edge of the bridge and points over it down into the moat, pointing at a duck. That is a duck. It is a common waterfowl. It doesn't look so foul. It's kind of cute. You hear Aos just mutter, like barely audible under her breath. Fucking hell. Eos, please. I'm sorry, Lady Antigone. I didn't... No, no, just get them, okay? Just grab them and and manhandle them toward the Citadel doors if that's what it's going to take to get you inside. There's just so much to look at. You didn't say... I mean, we have time, right? We can look around a little bit. (sighs) We are cutting it close as it stands. Our little snafu with the... Back in Refinery-19 set us back a few hours longer than I would have preferred, and I would rather not be later than we have to be for our council meeting. Speaking of which, yes, when we go inside, there is going to be a council meeting. It is a quick and brisk check-in, and they love to lord the fact that I have been a bit tardy for the past few meetings over my head like a sword, so I'd rather not give them more ammunition than they already have. Leave the duck alone! (laughs) Rune has one leg over the banister of the bridge and is staring down at the duck. Do you think I could catch it? Eos! Eos strides forward like a linebacker. She looks like she's about to tackle you and just, like, grab you by... She actually reaches forward and starts grabbing at you by the waist of the legs to pull you off the bridge. Oh, come on! You were so into throwing me off bridges, like, three days ago. Eos growls in your ear. Don't make this harder than it has to be on the lady. Besides, there are ducks inside the Citadel, too. Really? Yes. Okay, let's go. (sighs) Like, she lets go of you as you voluntarily hop off the bridge and, like, give the duck one last parting look. It's a cute little little brown duck. Yeah, she's. I think she's swimming. And as she, like, swims out under the shadow of the bridge, you see, like, seven little ducklings (gasps) also swimming behind her. They come in smaller and you didn't tell me? Antig- Antigone. 
She's just staring at the two of you. You and Eos, like her arms crossed, glowering, like a look on her face that could wilt salt. Are you quite done? Rune looks a little bit like a scolded child. I have finished looking at the duck. Good. <clears throat> Eos, heretic. And she turns and starts striding toward the stairs. You, <laughs> you follow Eos and Antigone toward the citadel. You go up these huge marble stairs, approaching these massive double gates. If you look up, you have to crane your neck to see the top of where the gates end, built into the citadel itself. And as Antigone approaches, the gates just swing open of their own accord. Like she doesn't even have to touch them. Like they bend inward at her presence. And the three of you step into the first level of the citadel. It is a massive foyer, the size of several dozen cathedrals packed together easily. All four gates into the citadel feed into the central atrium, over a thousand feet wide and a hundred feet tall. You see a domed ceiling split into four wedges arranged in order of the doors. The wedge directly above your head depicts a painting of the magician, a roguishly charming figure draped in silken robes of every color, their face forever obscured by the veil of their wide-brimmed Weimao hat. Above the eastern door, you see a painting of the emperor and the empress, two humanoid figures entwined in a divine embrace. It's impossible to tell where the emperor begins and the empress ends, but connecting them in the middle is a single sword gripped by two pairs of divine hands. Above the western door, you see a depiction of the thunderous Hierophant, his lined face weighed down by a six-tiered crown of hair, every knot in that tier a symbol of his wisdom, his meditations, his faith. The wrinkles of his skin are cracked like golden scars, and he has no eyes, only a constantly pursed mouth brimming with holy incantations. Above the northern door, you see the golden glimmering wheel of fortune with its gleaming spokes and handsome lion's face at its center. Precious metals, stones, gems of every shade are set into its shining grooves. You see silver, bronze, jade, sapphire, ruby, diamond. Dominating the center of the ceiling, like the hole of a well, is a depiction of the witness, a single, staring, all-seeing eye lined by a crowning cascade of feathers. And finally, the floor of this sweeping foyer depicts the judge. Beneath your feet, you see a massive mural of black stone cut through with sharp, jagged lines of white. These lines form judgment whom we call Judge, a hulking, vaguely humanoid-esque figure, jagged lines of muscle cutting through his four-fold pectorals to support two sets of hardened arms. His hood is thrown back to reveal not the head of a man, but the head of an axe. 
Rune, as you enter the foyer of the Citadel, how are you taking all of this in? That childlike wonder that had been playing in Rune as they went through the District of Invention, upon seeing the ducks, upon seeing the people, the food, the buildings, the trees, the plants, melts into that small, horrified place of a mouse on top of the world. And despite all of Zir training youth life as a heretic, there is something undeniably reverent and holy about this place. I think their footsteps reverberate through this stone floor, echoing out into this chamber. And they feel that pressure, that presence of godhood in these depictions, in these paintings. The six are unlike anything that they could have possibly imagined and yet are so far beyond it that it doesn't even seem real. And for a moment, Rune feels very small as they're walking through a few paces behind Antigone and Eos, staring upward, craning their neck, looking around, spinning in circles so that they can see everything in this room. And they slow down until I think they're paused staring upward at the witness's eye in the center of the ceiling, paused in the middle of this foyer, kind of forgetting where they are for a moment as they stare up into that unblinking, all-seeing eye. Yeah, I think you swear the painted pupil follows you as you stride forward, following Antigone and Eos. Antigone! As she walks forward, she appears completely unaffected by this opulent display of art and worship. You get the sense that this is common fare for her. After all, she grew up here. She was born, she lived, and presumably she'll die here. This is her home as much as Iron 42 is yours. Hmm. This might as well be the front door. Antigone approaches a raised dais in the center of the foyer that is encircled by runic etchings. And I think you follow her and Eos onto this dais. It's, it's quite a large one, actually, a very wide platform. And once you get there, the speaker raises her arms, steeples her fingers above her lips, and begins to pray. And as she speaks, the etchings glow all around you, lighting up in a circle. Ding, 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 ding. And then, whoosh. A column of light explodes around your bodies, and the foyer vanishes, just like that. It is replaced by a long hallway extending for dozens of feet before it terminates in a pair of obsidian and oak doors. This is the entryway into the Citadel's hallowed council hall. That much is obvious. At this point, Antigone steps off the dais, flanked a half-step behind by Eos, and she pauses at the end of the base, glancing over her shoulder up at you. Are you ready? Perhaps to her surprise, this teleportation doesn't seem to take Rune too much by surprise, more so than anything else has. This is about as alien and strange and new as ducks are, so at this point, I don't think Rune is particularly phased by this blatant display of magic quite so much. But they're still looking around, taking everything in, and then their eyes settle on Antigone, and Z says, I don't really think it matters if I'm ready or not. We're here. It's time to go. Hmm. That's right. 
And as long as you just keep your mouth shut, I will handle everything at the meeting. No doubt they will have questions. No doubt they will want you to speak in some regard. They will regard you as a curio or some sort of cipher to be cracked open and examined. I will field everything. Understood? Rune's eyebrows raise a hair. Cracked open, you say. Hmm. It's been a while, but sure, I'll go for it. Antigone rolls her eyes in a very impressive display. <laughs> I think you see like the full whites of her eyes and then like her pupils roll back forward. Okay, that's enough. Let's go. Okay, just just coping. Just coping here. You know this is weird for me, right? And Rune trots after her. <laughs> you, Antigone, and Eos's footsteps are muffled by a layer of thick velvet carpet as you stroll down this corridor. And as you proceed toward those doors, these tall, sweeping windows dot the western wall of this hallway, with these oblong slats of sunlight pouring through the glass, forming these golden pools on the floor. Past the windows, you see the majesty of the Citadel burrows just sprawled out in front of you, again, like a cornucopia of jeweled fruits. Eventually, the three of you do reach that huge pair of black wooden doors at the end of this hallway. And Antigone sighs again, but this time you get the sense that she's stealing herself for what's to come. She like rolls her shoulders back, lifts her chin, and then pushes these huge double oak doors open. And the three of you stride into the council hall. The council hall is a long, tall room with marble walls that strain up, up, up toward an open ceiling. As the chamber at the very top of the citadel, there is no roof. Instead, the tops of the walls taper to thin, jagged points like the cracked open ribs of some massive, dead god. And hanging in the sky above you, is the glowing head of the dead star, closer to you than you've ever been before. In front of you, you see a circular table made of chiseled white marble, and sitting around this table are the six speakers of the cradle, and standing behind each of them are their six champions. First, your eyes fall upon a golden-haired, dress-wearing, very pretty woman. She is glamorous and beautiful and the shiniest thing in the room, including the sun above your head. Standing behind her is presumably her champion, a muscular, red-haired woman who looks upset at the fact that she's awake. This champion carries a quiver of javelins on her back and has a short sword strapped to her waist. Next, you see the oldest person you've ever seen in your life. A holy man, draped in plain cloth robes with wrinkled, paper-thin skin. Standing behind him, presumably his champion as well, is a surprisingly young, 30-something, brown-haired, sad-eyed man. This man is very tall, like freakishly tall, like seven feet tall, and he's as thin as a beanpole, with these freakishly long arms that drape past his hips, almost touching his knees. He appears unarmed, but you do see what appears to be a scroll holder strapped to his waist. Next, you notice a roguishly handsome person with a gaunt face and a body of wiry muscle. 
This long silver hair tousles past their mostly unbuttoned tunic, and they look, in a single word, hungover. Standing behind this speaker is their champion, a heavily tattooed blue-haired person in tactical black armor, carrying a fucking gun. And as your eyes fall upon it, they even angle it slightly in your direction as though trying to scare your group with it. The next speaker is this ashen, sharp-eyed, ghost-looking person. Their age is impossible to fathom. They've just got one of those faces. They could be 23, they could be 40, it's really hard to tell. Z has short, dark hair shaved on the sides and these dark bags under Z's eyes. And standing behind Zim is the youngest champion in the room by far, barely older than a teenager. She's maybe 20, maybe 21, 22. And she has short hair as well and is heavily tattooed and has even more piercings than you do, which is saying a lot. And this champion looks extremely bored to be here, like she is bored out of her fucking skull, like she'd rather be doing anything but standing at this meeting. And as your eyes land on Hervoon, you notice three things immediately that unnerve you. The first is that this champion looks familiar. There is something about her face, maybe something about her hair, her eyes, you can't quite place it, but they look familiar. The second is that she returns your gaze as soon as it falls upon her, and instantly, it's like a switch going off. That look of boredom transforms into this intense fixation. Like she's trying to figure out a really difficult math problem, like she's staring at you like you're a conundrum, and then another switch seems to flick, and that intensity turns into rage. Hatred, even. Oh god. <laughs> Oh God is right. It's honestly really unnerving that this person you've never met before in your life could look at you with such instant, I fucking want you dead energy. And the third weird thing about this champion is her weapon. It is a huge, heavy looking ax strapped to the back of her slender body. The final member of the six, I think is the only one you recognize, along with Antigone and Eos in here. King Quintus Morius III sits in the big seat at this table, which is both metaphorical and literal, of course. His chair is the largest, most lavish chair of the six, more of a throne than a chair, really. And he grips this disgustingly expensive looking scepter and wears a jagged crown of pure gold upon his head. King Morius is, of course, as you recognize, the Speaker of Swords, your direct sovereign ruler, as Iron 42 is a swords district. And standing behind King Morius is his champion, the only other champion in this room you recognize aside from Eos. Sir Sloan Iscariot, the perfect sword as still as a statue behind her speaker. Her hair is short, efficiently cropped, as gray as Reksha's, and her face looks empty. Rune, how are you taking this in? Christ. So that top layer feeling of childish wonder, curiosity, violent desire to see all these things, these wonderful, beautiful, shining things that Rune has never seen before. 
evaporates like mist in the sun underneath the star's heavenly irradiated light. And for a flash, Rune feels like Z is a piece of meat being paraded for tigers. And I think Z freezes in the doorway for a moment, staring at all of these people, all of these hunters, staring them down. And there is a sudden deep realization of that horror that had been creeping underneath all of this, because these are the most powerful people in the entire cradle. These are the people who serve the gods. These are Rune's sworn enemies. And something about being with Antigone and Eos for these last weeks traveling out of Iron 42 had almost made Rune forget. Forget their position, forget their destiny as heretic, as god killer. And that feeling finally coalesces into something that Rune can name as doom. This lingering feeling of unease creeping up through their chest, through their lungs, as they face down the speakers and champions of the six. But then their gaze slides sideways to that young person with the axe and their eyes fix on her, an open question, I think, clear in their face. And I would like to use the mortal move, feel something or someone out. Because I have theories, but I need them confirmed. Okay, so when you feel someone or something out, say what you want clarity about and answer one. So what do you want clarity about? Why is she so familiar to me? I will give you the clarity you seek as I answer the other. So which of the two questions would you like to address? Either what feels welcoming on the surface or what feels unnerving when I peer deeper? What feels welcoming on the surface is the story the devil told. That there seems to be some kind of truth in it. As Rune stares down, presumably the champion of the below sees Jiang's axe strapped to her back. The idea, the claim that the devil had made that Zhang had been the champion of the below suddenly seems too real for Rune to question, for Rune to doubt. It had been lingering in their mind as an oddity, as a imperfect truth that the devil had spun for them. But upon seeing this real-life champion in the flesh, something about that feels, well, welcoming in the way that truth is welcome, even if it's scary and intense. Mm. So I'll give you the clarity you see as I answer the other. Okay, here it is. The other, what feels unnerving when I peer deeper? First, it finally clicks. Why that face is so familiar. It's Jiang's. I'm gonna bite you with my hands. Well, it's partially Jiang's at least. The shape of the eyes, the nose, the mouth. The curve of the jaw, <laughs> the hair. This is Jiang's relative, based on the age, <laughs> based on maybe the expression on their face. I mean, it's starting to line up. This could be Jiang's child. Oh my fucking god. They seem only a few years younger than you, at most. Uh-huh. 
The other thing, you know, what else I think is unnerving about that is the anger had clicked into place after that intense moment of calculation, right? Mm. So they hadn't recognized you immediately. But as he strolled in, this champion of the below, I think that is a safe assumption to make. Like her eyes were narrowed. She was trying to figure you out. And then it looked like something had clicked. Uh Like she was able to place you just as you were able to place her, maybe simultaneously. Oh, yeah, no, Uh uh-oh. Okay, yeah, no, that is unnerving. And I think as Rune makes that realization, they suddenly remember exactly where they are and they almost panic and glance back around the room trying to find out where the hell Antigone and Eos just went and they scurry over to their sides. Yeah, Antigone and Eos are very easy to find. They have just walked forward. Uh, Eos has pulled back like a big chair for Antigone to sit in and has like scooted the chair forward. And now Eos is taking her position, standing behind the speaker of the above. Eos casts her gaze over her shoulder, makes eye contact with you, and then uses her eyes to gesture at the empty space next to her on the other side of Antigone. Ooh, can I do as I'm told? Yeah, you absolutely can. So when you do as you're told, say how you show submission and answer one. The GM will show you a glimpse of their true intentions as they answer the other. So do you want to either address how are you rewarded or what vulnerability do you reveal? I will answer what vulnerability Rune reveals as they show submission by immediately moving to exactly where Eos gestures for them to stand. There's no eye roll, there's no snarky smile, there's no misalignment, there's no bad behavior, right? It is immediate and Rune falls into line like a soldier, like like a chess piece being moved across the board exactly where it was meant to go. And as they glance sideways up at Eos, there is a kind of low roiling panic in their face. And it was very clear who they had just been looking at. And that is the vulnerability mm. that I would like to reveal to Aos is that Rune is a little panicked by the presence of the champion of the below in this room. Mm. Okay, I like that a lot. As you slide into place, right? Like a pawn being moved forward. Aos's brow furrows and her eyes dart across the room at the champion of the below, whose gaze has not strayed from you this entire time, which yeah. isn't unusual. Everyone in here is looking at you because you're the new thing. You're the oddity. You're the anomaly, right? So everyone is looking at you with a range of expressions from curiosity to, you know, shock to annoyance to something deeper and darker you can't quite place yet. But her expression is the most openly hostile. Mm -hmm. I will absolutely just state that as fact. Eos clocks this as well. And how you are rewarded, I think, is you notice something. Not about the champion of the below, but about her speaker. This ageless, worn-out ghost of a person. As their eyes also fall upon you, you see their brow furrow, and then they glance down at Antigone. Antigone is not looking at them. Antigone seems distracted. She's looking at King Morius, right? And she looks like she's about to speak. So she misses the gaze that the speaker of the below is trying to shoot at her, and you see a look in Zir eyes, and it's barely constrained panic. Yeah, like Zir is like desperately trying to just with their eyes and gesture alone convey some sort of like important nonverbal information to Antigone. You just get the sense immediately, but Antigone isn't seeing it because Antigone isn't looking at them. That's how you're rewarded. You catch this. Oh my God. This is the worst fucking day of Rune's life. This social maneuvering, (laughs) this social interaction, this is fucked. This is horrible. Rune suddenly realizes that though they've been making fun of Antigone and blowing her off, this is actually horrible. 
The worst thing that could possibly happen to a human person in the cradle is being forced to stand in this room. And Rune suddenly realizes what a fucking shit show they've gotten themselves into. As they glance between the champion of the below, the speaker of the below, the back of Antigone's head, up at Aos again, back at Antigone's head, back at the speaker of the below, back at the champion, and then back at Aos. Like a quick rapid yeah. fire across the room. Absolutely. I think you look like a deer caught in like seven different headlights as all uh-huh. of these cores are converging upon you, right? Where you're just trying to eat your fucking berries. Right. And I don't like look panic, like looking around. Where are my fucking berries? You're fucking in front of my fucking berries. Yeah, exactly. So Antigone, not looking at the speaker of the below, oh God. she looks at King Quintus Morius and she says, Please forgive me my tardiness. We ran into some complications on our journey, but we're here now. And King Quintus Morius, the Speaker of Swords, he settles back in his big cushy throne and he drills his many ringed fingers. There are so many opulent gems just strapped to his digits, right? He drills them on the marble countertop of the council table. And he kind of carries himself like no one's ever told him to shut up before in his life. Right? Those are the vibes we're getting. And he says, you know, his lips kind of quivering over his very well-manicured beard. Oh, yes, well, Lady Antigone, it appears that tardiness is quite becoming a common fixture of the Speaker of the Above as much as eyes and wings. I assure you, as far as fixtures go, it is a temporary one. Oh, Lady Antigone. And this is the beautiful, radiant, golden speaker woman. She leans forward and she smiles. And you just get a flash of like a serpent with golden fangs. That's the aura she exudes. And she says, I don't necessarily even think it's a bad thing that you've taken to being late. There is such a thing as fashionably tardy. But given the importance of this particular meeting, perhaps you would like to save that fashion trend for another time. Miss Ellenfax, thank you for your advice, though unsolicited. Oh, my lady Antigone, I would hope that even my unsolicited advice is of some use to you, given that your wardrobe has not changed since you took office. This is a nightmare. This is the worst day of Rune's life. (laughs) To Antigone's credit, she doesn't even flinch. This seems par for the course for her. Like she is fielding these jabs very competently. A pang of sympathy comes into Rune's body for Antigone without them meaning to. It at once disgusts and surprises them as they feel it for her in this moment, but they stay quiet and continue to listen in. Mm. As you do, Antigone responds to this person who has been named as Miss Ellenfax. I find it commendable and enviable that the biggest problems on your plate as the speaker of coin are those to do with clothes. And at that, Miss Ellenfax's emerald gaze narrows, right? And a shadow crosses her face, even though that smile remains. Antigone turns to address the table at large. If we're done with these little formalities, I would like to report back about my journey now. Ah, yes, 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 your journey. And this is the silver-haired speaker, right? In like the leather pants and the low-slung tunic, right? This entire time, they have had a journal propped open on their lap, and they're doodling in it with a piece of charcoal. And they're glancing over at you every couple of seconds, and you get the sense that you know what the subject of their doodles are. Mm. 
Rune has the passing thought that if anyone were to quote-unquote crack them open, as Lady Antigone had just suggested, they would prefer it to be this person. This person goes on to say without looking at you, We're all very interested about this raw piece of meat you've dragged into our den. Lady Antigone, and we all have our fair share of questions, I suppose I'll start with mine, let's see. So, yes, why don't you tell us from the beginning exactly what has happened ever since you left the gilded halls of the Citadel? Professor Nightingale, that doesn't very much sound like a question, more like a command, but I will oblige you regardless. And Antigone just kind of jumps into a very well-rehearsed account of events that leaves out some very salient details. She leaves out the fact that you jumped out the window when you were interrogated. She leaves out the fact that you killed Athamos. She leaves out the fact that you're a heretic. She leaves out everything about the chariot. Basically, all she tells these people is that she went down to Iron 42. She found you. You admitted that you were cursed by the devil a number of years ago, but haven't seen him since. And that's it. And then there's the journey back here. And she ends with the story by saying, which I'm sure all of you would understand is why I'm quite eager to get to my prayer chapel so I can commune with the witness and receive proper answers about the nature of this curse and the location of the devil. Now, if you'll excuse me. And she starts to stand up, like dismissing herself from the meeting. But King Morius raises a hand and she stops like mid-stand. Oh, Lady Antigone, Lady Antigone, just, just... Uh, please sit back down. We've blocked out an hour for today's meeting, and the full hour we shall get. Please believe me, all of us are very interested. In the details of your journey, I can't help but feel as though there are a couple of brass tacks that are missing from your assemblage of story. Antigone remains paused, half standing, half sitting. I'm afraid I don't understand what you're referring to, King Morius. Everything I've shared with all of you is all that needs to be shared at this time with all of you. Rune is staring at the speaker of the below, trying to read this inscrutable expression that is playing on Zir's face. And that's actually when Z speaks. And your voice is whispered like, like a dark cloud waiting for rain, like the illusion of a voice, and yet it carries, it rings out with the same kind of authority all these speakers ring out with. King Morius, I cannot help but agree with the Lady Antigone in this moment. Perhaps it is best if she is able to commune with the witness for full context and answers before we jump to conclusions or hasty action. Oh, please, Mix Harpbloom. We've already reached our hasty answers and conclusions before the Lady Antigone got here. And don't forget where the majority opinion lies. Now, this is new information to you, Rune. Whatever King Morius is referring to, whatever hasty action and opinion was decided before you got here, like, this is not... You were not aware of this. You don't know what he's talking about. You don't know what either of them are referring to. And based on Antigone's exact next words, you get the sense that neither does she, because she sits back into her chair and says, Pardon me? Ah, yes, Lady Antigone. Before you convened, because of your tardiness, yes, of course, the five of us voted on a relevant action item concerning the details you would be able to bring forth to us. But before I divulge the contents of such action item, there are a couple of questions I would like to ask you, and please understand that I require correct answers. 
And what do you mean by correct answers, King Morius? Direct ones. Ones that address the question that is being asked, not talk around it. Question number one. Did they really kill Athos? Oh, fuck. Yup. Antigone does not react. The back of her head, you can't see her face, but she, she doesn't react, she doesn't move. Neither does Eos, but you do hear Eos like breathe in sharply once. I think Rune breathes completely in concert to her. A sharp inhalation of breath before their eyes become pinned on King Quintus Morius. Antigone's response is fast, as though there weren't even a pause, right? You get the sense that she thought through a thousand different potential responses within a fraction of a second, and bam, she, she just responds immediately. I have no idea what you're talking about, King Morius. Fascinating. Well, let me repeat again what I said about correct answers. Antigone. And this time he doesn't use the honorific. He doesn't address her as Lady Antigone. He just says Antigone. And you're no expert when it comes to court politics, but you get the sense that, that is, that's a big move. <laughs> that is a major social faux pas. You're always supposed to address a speaker with their proper title, and he drops it now as a show of force. Again, Antigone doesn't move. She's just completely like stone still, but she does respond again almost immediately. And that is the correct answer I have for you, Quintus. My knowledge is the domain of my god. I owe none of you any of it, unless I have been commanded to do so by the witness himself. Or are you presuming that you have more authority than the gods? Some murmuring between Miss Ellen Fax and this Professor Nightingale person. This mixed heart bloom person? the kind of hollowed out ghost that's been trying to get Antigone's attention and failing, you see them prop their elbow up on the marble countertop and they're rubbing their like two fingers against their temple. They look extremely stressed. The feeling of doom is starting to bloom into something more vicious and violent inside of Rune. And I would like to use one of my vagabond moves. <gasps> which, which, oh my God, why am I always so surprised when you do stuff? <laughs> which one would you like to use? All right, when I've killed or spared more than one god, I can ask one of the following once per session. Well, aren't they telling me what god has a hold on them? What do they know of me or my deeds? I assume you want to ask the third one? Oh, I'm so torn. I'm so torn. Or what aren't they telling me? Good options. I know. They're, like a blade. they're so good. So it seems like the speaker of the below, Mix Heartbloom, has been trying mm -hmm. to get Antigone's attention this whole time. Correct. They even spoke up, mm -hmm. right? In support of Antigone, I think is, is the vibe you're getting. But then the other speakers had cut in and seized her attention again. Mm -hmm. Rune sucks in a really deep breath into their lungs and holds it. And force of will stares at the speaker of the below. <laughs> okay. Like literally just trying to will through sheer force for them to look at them. And I would like to ask, what aren't they telling me? I will answer you very soon because there's some other information I think I want you to get before I address that question. Oh so as you're like sucking in your breath and staring at this mixed heart bloom person, like in your head being like, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. King Morius goes on to say in response to the silence, you know, that like has, has extended after Antigone's honestly very well-worded point about authority and divinity and mortality. He says, 
none of us here, Lady Antigone, are presuming to be more important than the gods we serve. But there is a way of doing things in the Citadel, my lady. Procedures that have to be honored, rules that must be respected. And I, as the owner of the big seat, given my champion's success in the previous tournament, have certain privileges that everyone here must adhere to. And at this point, cutting in is the oldest man of the world uh, who hasn't spoken yet up until this point. The presumably speaker of cups, right? A guardian of faith. He's literally wearing like Pope robes, right? And this man says to Antigone, kind of entreatingly even, come, come now, Lady Antigone. I know that you think the six, we are against you, but we are not. We're all on the same side here. We all want the same thing the preservation and the success and flourishment of the cradle, the survival, nay, the thriving of the six above us and below us, and to keep things as they are, as they have been, as they work. Is that not what you desire as well, my Lady Antigone? We're all on the same side here. Pontifilius. I appreciate what you are saying, and I do agree with you. Yes, my priorities are the preservation of the cradle, the safeguarding of our domains, and of course, the safekeeping of our gods. I don't think anyone here disagrees with that. And believe me when I say the information I am prepared to share with you right now goes to serve that aim. Lady Antigone, we know about Athamos. We know about what happened down in that pit town. We know about the chariot, and we know about what was spoken on the bridge of Chemical 4. Silence. The longest silence that has happened so far when it has been Antigone's turn to speak. And then she says, I am the speaker of the above. I am the tongue of truth. I am the prophet of knowledge. I don't know what omens the five of you have been attempting to interpret in my absence, but I assure you they are false. They are misleading. They are... And Miss Ellenfax cuts in. Oh, it wasn't an omen. It was a message. A little birdie told us everything. A birdie by the name of Eureka. Faye heard everything the three of you were talking about on that bridge above the vat. And Faye did fair duty as a minor arcana living in the domain of the six. Faye told us everything Faye knew. And not just that, you are not the only one who communes regularly with the god you serve, Lady Antigone. The other six, and I'm sure the witness as well, have been sensing disturbances in the river. Very strange ebbs and flows that were not there before you left the Citadel. Professor Gale cuts in. Antigone, let's just cut the bullshit, yeah? We know... Athamos is dead. We know the chariot is dead. We know the exact contents of your trio's conversation on the bridge. All we're trying to figure out here is if that 
and their eyes fall upon you, Rune, is actually this figure everyone's calling the God Killer. And that word, God Killer, hangs over the council room like an executioner's axe, ready to fall. And that's when Mix Heartbloom looks at you. You lock eyes, and I will answer your question. What aren't they telling me? Those eyes are wide. That gaze is filled with information. As soon as you see that gaze directly and it's not being uselessly lobbed in Antigone's direction, you recognize what it is. You're in danger. Your fate had been sealed before you even set foot in this chamber. This council has had it out for Antigone long before your name was even a whisper on the breath of the Six, and there is nothing she could have done or said or acted in this meeting to alter this course of action. They want you dead. And they want her dead, too. Yeah. As Rune locks gazes with Pilandar, Unbeknownst to them, an inky darkness starts to fill up their right eye, bleeding out of the red iris, and their head swivels away from Mixpilandar as though they have determined exactly what they need to know, and this cool, empty calm settles over them. The hesitation right before a match is struck and lit the gasp of air before an explosion, the stillness before the storm. They look at Professor Nightingale firmly, and for the first time in this council room, they speak. And Z says, Yes, I am the god killer. (gasps) Oh my god! Okay, you say that. And it's like the breath is sucked out of this hall. As you say those words and those emotions are replaced immediately, first with shock, like all of these speakers, except for maybe the speaker of the below, they look look shocked that you, first of all, have spoken. And then the shock turns into like fear. That's right. You sense fear creeping into the gazes of each of these speakers, their eyes going wide, kind of like a knot of anxiety and and terror forming upon their expressions. Gail's mouth hangs open. Unable to respond, it is King Quintus Morius who speaks up next. (laughs) You've done it now, Lady Antigone, you have done it now. Whatever game you were trying to play, whatever ploy, whatever sheep's wool you were trying to throw over our eyes. Oh, well, your little puzzle piece doesn't quite slot into your plan so obediently and easily as you thought they would, now does it? And Antigone, for the first time in this council meeting, turns away from the six and looks up at you behind her. Her eyes are wide. What do you think you're doing? Rune puts their hand on her shoulder, pulls her back in her seat a little bit, and moves to stand on top of the table in front of her, like to shield her from the rest of the six. As soon as you move, pull Antigone back, like your foot going up onto the marble, every single champion in this room, Aeos included, their hand goes to their weapons. 
they're drawn. There's like a shing of blades and javelins and spears being like unhitched from their sheaths, but none of them are actually attacking you. They're just readying their weapons immediately as soon as you move. Antigone goes, Ruin, what are you doing? I highly recommend King Morius that you lay off of Lady Antigone now. If you wish to speak with the god killer, speak with me. I am here to answer any of your questions. Ha 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 The rat speaks! The rat turns tail and speaks to the cats, chasing them to the tigers and the wolves in the jungle. Ha 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 Your hubris! Oh my! Your arrogance! Well, of course you'd be a heretic as well. The disrespect you have for everything the cradle stands for. You take your foot off our council table or I will remove it from its ankle. A wicked smile cracks over Rune's face as that inky blackness continues to eat up the devil's eye in their face. The devil's smile. As Rune pulls themselves all the way up onto the table their other foot hovering above the marble before they set it down slowly. And their head cocks to the side as they look at King Quintus Morius and say very quietly under their breath, I know a thing or two about hubris. I killed the god that created it. And now every like step you take forward, now all the speakers are talking, their voices overlapping in this mountain panic. You hear Miss Ellenfax go, what the gods, what is wrong with their eye? Gail, Gail, do you see that eye? And Professor Nightingale, his journal is down. He's leaning forward in his chair for the first time in his life. He no longer looks hungover, right? Their eyes are white as well. They're also like slapping Dido Ellenfax's like hand. like. He- well, yes, 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 darling. Yes, of course. I see the eye. How could I not see the eye? My gods, what's happening? This place is going to the dogs. And then cutting in his pontiff, Philios, uh, the speaker of the Hierophant. Uh, he's leaned back in his chair. He looks terrified, right? He's regarding you like blasphemy embodied, which of course you are. And his fingers are going over and over and over again, the ridges and the grooves of these prayer beads that are strung around his palms. And he's going, by the gods. This heresy shall not stand by the gods. This sacrilege shall not stand by the gods. This heresy shall not stand by gods. This sacrilege shall not stand. And his like prayer is like overlapping with his own teeth. And King Quintus Morius looks stricken, face drained of color, gripping his scepter like it's a sword, like it's a shield that will protect him from you. (laughs) But his laugh this time sounds scared. It doesn't sound confident. It doesn't sound easy. It sounds kind of terrified, right? The laughter of someone who's backed into a corner, the laughter of a cat that didn't realize the rat was so strong, didn't realize that even a worm would turn. (laughs) Lady Antigone, Lady Antigone, what is this? What is this? Is this treason? You mean to turn upon us with this what? With this wild animal you've brought in? From the wilderness, from the fringe? You mean to threaten us? What? No, no, King Morius, no, I am not. Ruin, Ruin, what are you doing? Ruin, stand down. Ruin, remember rule number three and two and one. Ruin peels their eyes off of the quivering King Quintus Morius and looks sideways over their shoulder at Antigone with their gray eye, with their mortal eye. And there is a calm, compassion 
there. Like a gentleness. They've already decided what they want with us. No, 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 I had this under control. I still have this under control. I can talk our way out of it. This is your curse. This is your curse. It's flaring up. It's just a curse. Let me fix this. There's no fixing this. I'm not broken. Ruin. And Ruin turns back to King Quintus Morius. As you turn back to him, he looks so scared. He looks so terrified. But there's something else coming over his face now. Seeing you, seeing that black sclera completely filling that right eye, seeing this, like, calm assuredness. It's like he's reached a decision. He has reached a choice. He has gone past the point of no return. Up until this point, you now know all the speakers are kind of sussing you out. They're kind of like trying to probe at you, probing at Antigone, trying to figure out if the stories that they were told by Eureka matched up with what they were seeing in front of them. And now that story and what they're seeing now clicks into place. It is undeniable. You are undeniable as the god killer, as heretic. And King Quintus Morius says, Champions of the Six, as we had agreed upon during the vote before the Lady Antigone's arrival, kill the heretic. God Killer First Blood is performed by Connie Chong and C. Thomas. Follow Connie on Twitter and TikTok at ByConnieChong and C on Twitter at CPlaysRPG. To play your very own campaign of God Killer and support our show, pre-order God Killer First Blood Edition on itch.io today. Transplaner RPG is made possible by your Patreon contributions and sponsors who believe in our mission to tell great stories and lift up our community. Sponsors like ExplainTrade.com. Explain Trade is a negotiation skills consultancy whose director, Dimitri Opines on Twitter, has asked us to say, and I quote, please sign up for Transplaner's Patreon because at some point people will figure out he's a cisgender white guy giving all his money to trans and queer art and then he'll be too broke to sponsor us. We love you, Dimitri, and heed his words. Sign up for our Patreon today at patreon.com slash transplanerrpg. First Blood is also sponsored by Start Playing Games, the largest online platform for players to find tabletop role-playing campaigns of your very own. Join a table that fits your schedule today at startplaying.games. We are also sponsored by Magpie Games, the independent TTRPG publisher behind such incredible works as Masks A New Generation, Avatar Legends, Urban Shadows, Bluebeard's Bride, and much, much more. Check out their amazing selection of Powered by the Apocalypse games at magpiegames.com. Finally, we're proud to be sponsored by Roll. Roll is an online RPG platform that serves as a video-first alternative to complex virtual tabletops. Build, modify, and play your very own games of Godkiller on Roll today at playroll.com. 